Welcome to Beneath the Subsurface, a podcast that investigates the intersection of geoscience and technology. In our second episode, we'll deep dive into seismic technologies, pre-stack seismic attributes, acquisition developments, and our predictions for the future of seismic in the unconventional realm. From the software development department here at TGS, I'm Erica Conadera, your host and complete newcomer to the world of onshore seismic. I hope you'll find our discussion today as informative and enjoyable as I did. Um, so let's start with introductions to my left. Yeah, my name is Jason Kegel. I've been at TGS for six years. I'm a geologist. I've worked on almost every one of the onshore U.S. seismic programs that we have. Awesome. I'm Wayne Millice. I'm the graybeard of the group. I've been with TGS only about 11 years, but or sorry, eight years. But I've been in the business about 35 years. I'm the VP of Onshore Multi-Client. Uh, and I'm here to hopefully teach some people about the value of seismic in our business. I'm Mike Purs. I'm uh, the Director of Technology in the Onshore Group. So I'm responsible for looking after all matters technical in support of that group. And I'm not quite as gray-bearded as the gentleman sitting to my <laughs> right, but I have been in the industry for about 25 years. So I'm kind of blondish with wisps of gray, I guess you'd say. <laughs> no spring chicken. Awesome. So let's kick off the discussion for today, uh, if you will, Wayne, by giving us a brief description of uh, TGS's involvement in onshore. Sure. TGS was primarily an onshore, offshore company up until about 2011. In 2011, we started the onshore business uh, about January, I believe, if I remember correctly, and that's how long I've been here, since January. 2011. 2012, we acquired a company called Arcus in Canada. That gave us an instant library of about 15,000 square kilometers in the Western Canadian Center of Entry Basin. And in 2012, we started our first project in uh, the U.S. And uh, we have since grown the library from the initial 15,000 square kilometers or so until about a 34,000 square kilometer base or database based in the U.S. and Canada. So it's been uh, it's been a fun run. And uh, it's going well. Awesome. So, Mike, can you take it over for seismic technology? What do we do with the data once we get it? Sure. So the first thing that happens is that data have to be processed. And I always like to call seismic processing the Rodney Dangerfield of the E&P chain. <laughs> and the reason I say that is, as you might predict, it, it gets very little respect. Uh, certainly in terms of the almighty buck and the price the price points very little budget yeah very very little budget and it's kind of ironic because as Wayne and I have discussed a lot it's the seismic processing step where we have maximal client engagement usually during the course of a multi-client project and reputations are won and lost on the processing but again very little dollar value flows with it I don't fully understand why the valuation isn't higher but it's a problem that I certainly can't fix so we 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 kind of in a way we try to almost leverage that fact that it's a, a fairly uh, fairly cheap technology and we take it very seriously at, at TGS so with that preamble about why it, it isn't the most highly valued element of the of the chain uh, let's talk about some of the key outputs from processing so the thing called the migrated stack is probably the single most important processed attribute in an unconventional play. In, say, offshore environments like the Gulf of Mexico, seismic 
technology is known by CEOs of big oil companies as an important de-risking tool for, say, subsol plays. The, in the case of unconventionals, I would not say that Seismic has that same kind of universal traction whereby everybody on the C-suites on down know about Seismic. Nevertheless, it, it is gaining a, a lot of momentum. And when you say unconventionals, can you um, elaborate on that? Yeah, I'm talking, I, I'm, actually, we're all going to be restricting the scope of this discussion to the uh, shale plays, onshore shale plays in, uh, well, North America primarily. Primarily, yeah. Our primary focus on probably the Permian and the Scoop and Stack, too. But there are several, several basins in the, uh, in the U.S. market that you could consider unconventional. Okay. Right? Yeah. So back to this business of the migrated stack, it is well accepted that it's a very useful thing in unconventional um, development. And the primary reason for that is it helps in uh, delineating landing zones for the lateral wells and also geosteering and uh, hazard avo avoidance. And I don't know, Jason, if you wanted to expand from a geological perspective about why those things are so important. In the, in the depth domain with seismic, you can start really understanding how to land your wells and doing geosteering. In the unconventional world, that's one of the most important things that people are doing right now with their seismic. Um, geosteering in particular and finding these landing zones has been important because these reservoirs we're looking for, these unconventional reservoirs, can be anywhere from 10 to 50 feet, which is a lot of times right around the, <clears throat> the area of seismic resolution. Mm -hmm. um, what we found to be more difficult is sort of calibrating everything together. So when we have the data, so calibrating the well logs, the tops, some of the understanding the differences in the different tool parameters, your measured while drilling tool parameters versus your after drilling parameters, and how that relates back to uh, depth calibration has been very important in the seismic industry. Um, bringing all those things together to geosteer real time to actually find these landing zones has been something that a lot of different softwares have att attempted to do and bringing this into a multi-client aspect where the operator can instantly get a depth calibrated volume that they can geosteer on or look at their regional area of interest onshore has been very different than offshore seismic which has traditionally had that depth migrated volume to begin with. I can expand on one thing that Jason said too. When we talk about regional views on the petroleum systems, so our TGS's uh, strategy to date has been to get assets that are contiguous within these uh, with these within these basins, so you can understand the regional view of an oil, of an oil producing basin or a, or a hydrocarbon producing basin. So it's important, in our opinion, that we get a large regional view. That's why you'll see some of our databases online when you look at our when you look at our projects, they're very contiguous and very focused on one area. So yeah, Jason gave a nice description of, of why we might want to use migrant stacks for, for geosteering. And he touched on something important. He brought up resolution and he talked about thin beds on the order of 10 feet to 50 feet. And one of the real bugbears or unfortunate reality in, in the seismic processing world is the fact that we really cannot dive down to smaller resolutions than, than those beds. In fact, we're probably operating in, in the order of like um, wavelengths of hundreds of feet. So resolving those beds is, is pretty tricky. We can detect them sometimes, but not resolve them. And we're always being pushed on the processing side to, to do a better job. 
And it's disappointing because all sometimes all the acquisition equipment in the world isn't going to help you through that. Mother Nature is cruel in a way, and she chews up the high frequencies. And there really hasn't been a breakthrough in seismic processing technology to allow us to um, bash through that, that limitation. So resolution is an ongoing issue, and we're always squeezed by it in, in the unconventional context, in the, especially for this geosteering. So that's worth, worth noting. And one other quick thing, uh, Jason mentioned pre-stack depth migration, and that's an important new technology in unconventionals. Technology has been around forever, for 20, 25 years in the Gulf of Mexico, but it's really gaining ground in unconventionals. And in, in fact, uh, TGS, shameless plug for a talk, but um, TGS is gonna be hosting a talk uh, in early June, June 6th, Mariana Roche-Davies is gonna talk about pre-stack depth migration and why it's valuable in unconventional plays. We should be plugging lots of things here, shouldn't we? All sorts right. of all sorts of things. Shame, shamelessly, shameless plugs. <laughs> so, so if if I could move away uh, from the migrated stack, I just want to talk about the second big thing that seismic data is used for on the and the um, processing side, and that's the the pre-stack data are used for generating attributes, and we sometimes call this ABO analysis or pre-stack inversion. And the interesting thing here is that while the migrated stack has quite a lot of acceptance as a, as a really good de-risking tool for the reasons we mentioned, there is less universal acceptance of uh, the, these pre-stack derived seismic attributes. Some, I, I can think of one really technically astute interpreter from a Permian player who's very successful mm -hmm. and they don't touch the pre-stack attributes because they're too contaminated by noise. On the other hand, you go to the SCG or Ertec, and all the there's tons of talks on using these pre-stack attributes. So it depends on who you talk to. Some people use them, some people don't. My hope is that they're going to be used more and more down the road. We're kind of pinning a lot of our own technical direction on that, on that premise. Yeah, well, pre-stack attributes have always sort of been the holy grail for for people to find their find their sweet spots, right? I mean, looking at AVO in, in context, I mean, that's the, the, the number one thing, right? And people are always Absolutely. looking to, to find their bright spot, right? There's been tons of wells drilled just on that. Um, but then to bring in rock mechanics and what they're doing with, with more pre-stack attributes with rock brittleness and actually trying to look at Poisson's ratio and um, Young's modulus, when we start to look at those, we start to actually correlate the actual rock properties to what we're getting from our, our sound frequencies. Um, the more we can we can do that, and the better we can actually accomplish that, is in the academic world has always been the the, the driver, right? And you can't talk to hardly any anybody that's teaching geophysics or rock mechanics or geology nowadays that doesn't want to talk about how to correlate your your wells to your seismic, and it all comes down to understanding densities and shear wave and your your compressed wave wireline tools and bring that back to the to the seismic world um, unfortunately Mike is, is is correct in saying that a lot of operators in these unconventional zones don't necessarily don't necessarily use it they'll use it on their on their own they'll use it proprietarily they'll use their own individual softwares to do that but in a multi-client aspect it hasn't really caught as much traction as, as I think it will. And I think one of the big things that might push that is um, regional. Is that, is that something you guys think? I mean, the idea to have more regional studies of pre-stack attributes and pre-stack um, volumes. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good idea. I mean, one of the nice things with our huge 
well database at TGS is we can we can leverage that massive information source into these regional studies. And one thing I forgot to mention was that this pre-stack inversion or attribute business, it does very well to have a lot of well control, and we've got lots of that here. So that would that would certainly help garner garner interest. One of the big problems I think that that detracts from acceptance is just that there are not kind of generic workflows for what to do with the pre-stack attributes once you once you have them. It's quite easy to, to, to stare down a migrated stack and figure out I steer here or I land here. That's a you know that that protocol is easy to understand. What do you do with all these attributes? And different companies have their own secret sauce for that. And sometimes they're quite tightly guarded about what they what they do. So I think that may change in the future. We hope it does. Why do you think it might change? Uh, I, I just I just think it will behoove everybody to to leverage the seismic more everybody would win from from to that to be more transparent with their methodologies or possibly i mean i think as as technologies emerge that or we push or we push the methodologies right so yeah, we, we have yeah. we have the data points internally that we need to start pushing those te- those, those solutions mm-hmm. so to speak right so push them out and then our customers will create their own secret sauce from hopefully some of our solutions that we're aware of so. Yeah, and even as they push their secret sauce, as the years tick away, typically people give up. They cough up their secret sauce to make a bad, yeah. <laughs> to extend it, a lousy metaphor. But they they tend they tend to divulge it in public domain, and we all you know, yeah. benefit from it. So it, it's another paper at Urtech. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So yeah, I guess this seismic technology thing is my, my bailiwick. That's why I'm doing a lot of the talking here. The I was I was going to uh, move on now to future future looking at. Sure. Data processing, first of all, and take a stab at what I what I think are important technologies of the future. Uh, one is an old thing. It's noise, noise, noise. Getting rid of noise, especially in places like the Permian. The Permian's so nasty as regards seismic soundings. You got these horrible near surface layers of anhydrites and salts interspersed, and then you get these these fill zones where the salt collapses, and it it, it kind of bedevils uh, all your seismic uh, tools in in many ways. And so that's why that one operator I was telling you about is reluctant to look at, at their pre-stack data mm-hmm. for fear of the noise screwing up their analysis. So we've got to do a better job at noise. Uh, we've got to do uh, a better job at eliminating multiple energy. Yeah. Full waveform inversion is a fairly well-established technology offshore. We need to leverage that knowledge, get it going, working better onshore for us. Gets us nice velocity models, among other things. Those are good for feeding this pre-stack depth migration technology. What are the challenges of leveraging that? Like, good question. The data are noisier on land typically, okay. and so that isn't totally compatible with the full waveform inversion model. So you have to adapt uh, the model. You've got to adapt them. You've got okay. yeah, adapt it to handle topography, things like that. And there are people are people are doing that. We're, we're certainly very active in that in that space at TGS. Some of our competitors are as well. But again, I, I don't think there is this sort of routine commercial use at this point. I mean, I know there's not just yet, but we're getting there. So yeah, those, those are kind of the, 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 big, the big things. Now, the last thing I was gonna ramble on about a bit was taking a future look at interpretation. So where would interpretation be going for, for unconventionals? Because, I mean, Jason, check me if I'm wrong. It's, it's really a different beast than conventional plays where interpreters have their, their special ways to stare down data and pick sweet spots and bright spots. This is not that, that same thing. I, I, and I could be off base here, I'm just I'm prognosticating. I, I think that uh, one, one important thing in the future will be y- using machine learning and say 
at TGS, we could leverage our data and analytics group for this stuff and basically use machine learning to tease out complicated relationships between seismic attributes and production and completion data points with the view towards being able to predict from the attributes alone where the next learning zone should be in next next well. Just shameless plug, um, our first episode was all yeah. about machine learning <laughs> and AI, so please check it out if you haven't already. Well, and there are some inter interesting conversations at our AI uh, summit, mm -hmm. too, so to speak, about who would be picking the next location. Would it be AI being confirmed by a human or a human confirming AI? Yeah. So right. there was a, that, that was a pretty interesting discussion at that, at that particular fact, so good point to bring up. Y yeah, yeah, for sure. And when it comes to interpretation in particular with, with seismic, and how machine learning can help. Having all of that data readily available in the cloud is sort of the first step, right? So when it comes to machine yeah. learning, it's just a matter of the more data you have in the, in the machine, the better you're gonna have it coming out. But that's everything that TGS does have, right? The well data, and you start including tops, production, completion techniques, different attributes for seismic. Then you actually get the machine starting to actually tell you where your reservoirs are going to have sort of different permeabilities, right? And if you can start understanding where these different permeabilities come in in these shales, very slight variations can lead to huge benefits in production. So that's a that's a very big thing that we would love to be able to do, but it's not not quite there yet. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're raising a good point. We we I feel like we have all the the ducks in a row here at TGS, and it. It's, it's interesting because there are others before us have played around with multivariate analysis to, mm -hmm. to, to try to fit these attributes to things like production. They don't have the breadth of data that we have at TGS. They don't have as ready access to a lot of these things. So we're, we're poised to do some, some pretty cool stuff. So watch this space, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing I was going to say on, on future-looking interpretation-wise, and I, again, I disclaimers because I could be wrong, but I believe that... that Combining seismic with geomechanical modeling software may be an important thing to that end. And again, what is this, our third shameless plug? Yes, well, we keep doing that because that's what we're here for. Yeah. So, so we're undertaking a joint study with Frac Geo, a geomechanical modeling software and services company in the Permian Basin on our West Kermit data set in the Delaware. And we're going to be reporting back on that soon. But basically, we're just we're taking our seismic data and post-ac attributes like curvature to predict fault locations and that becomes feedstock for their geomechanical modeling stuff and also the stuff you brought up Jason Poisson's ratio and all the things we glean from inversions those will go into their geomechanical modeling process as well so that you know hopefully that's a, a new sector in which seismic can be used increasingly we realized that we missed something we need to circle back around to a topic related to pre-stack depth migration gentlemen yeah Pre-stack depth migration in unconventionals. We kind of gave it short shrift. I just wanted to add a few more, more things. I had mentioned that it's a very established technology, pre-stack depth migration in offshore plays, Gulf of Mexico and such. And it's only been over the last couple of years that operators are using pre-stack depth migration a lot for unconventionals. It's interesting to note, you don't get the jaw-dropping improvements on the migrated stacks that you do in the Gulf of Mexico because the data are not nearly as structured, right? Jason, right. In most areas, I know, when people say railroad tracks, they're not kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you don't get these amazing glossy brochure image improvements on the stacks, but the the benefits come in subtler but still important ways. For example, you get natural output in, in depth. It's one one really important thing, 
And another thing, you get better fault definition after pre-depth migration. Sometimes I think the real prize can be the actual velocity model itself. One really important difference in velocity model building for pre-stack depth migration in the unconventional onshore case compared to offshore is that in the former case, in the onshore case, we've got so much more well data to constrain or lock down our velocity models, especially at TGS with our massive well database. And so that's, that's a, a really, really good thing. So that's why I feel quite confident at the end of the day the velocity models are so responsibly constructed that you really can trust those depths and you get this natural depth conversion after depth migration that's as good or better than what an interpreter would do using his favorite or her favorite method for, for depth converting time process data. And on that well topic, our TGS so-called RLAS synthetic well construction using machine learning, that's really going to help our depth model building. We've yet to exploit it, but we're going to basically be able to get way more sonic wells through this our last process to constrain interval velocities. And that's and that's a, a big benefit in the shallow. We start looking at the the shallower area for drilling hazards and drilling risk. Um, we also start looking at that for for water for water. So in the Delaware, it's a big issue not only just produced water and injected water and salt water disposal but making sure that the the drinking water and the aquifer water that's usually in those shallower intervals is is safe so it's an environmental concern that we look into having that velocity model better structured in the upper sections that we we normally don't look too much into when we're looking at exploration per se onshore uh, helps quite a bit with that both environmental and with with hazard type mitigation and the RLAS construction will, will help that process, right? Oh, by, absolutely. By the RLAS putting answers up in the shallow. Any type of velocity model that can improve on the the prior velocity model is of, of big concern. So you can get back to geosteering. Anything that helps that velocity model, a lot of times when they are geosteering, they'll have real-time velocity model building as the mud loggers are providing new information, they cross different faults, they, they notice different things that can instantly update the velocity model they're using to help steer that well. So it just goes back to the fact that having the best velocity model up front is going to help the, the final piece of the puzzle, which is landing that well in the, the zone where you can get the most oil or gas out of it. And that's been shown, there, there's been a bunch of studies that have shown this, but there was one in the Balkan a few years ago that showed that using 3D depth seismic helped reduce their costs by like 75%. Wow. Just by having their geosteers use seismic. So that's a, you know, it's a, a known value for, for the, the seismic industry and the oil and gas industry to, to geosteer with depth migrated volumes. And it's nice to see that in the multi-client aspect, that's starting to, to really catch hold. Absolutely. And let's just push it onto those pre-stack attributes now. <laughs> we just need it in the attribute yeah. world. Okay. Particularly so. with faults, right? So you're talking about some of the coherent studies with the post-stack. But when we can take some of that pre-stack ideas about brittleness and Poissons and young modelists and looking at those pre-stack, bring it to the post-stack to where we can start identifying the fault structures and how those faults work. If you are interpreting those faults on your seismic before you go into your completion plan, then you have a much better idea of how you can track that well horizontally. So these wells nowadays are mile, two miles long in some cases. I mean, they're, they're, they go for quite a ways. 
going over some of these faults that have 20 feet to 50 feet of throw can greatly throw off where you're where you're where you're steering that well. So any type of better velocity model will will help you guide that. And a lot of times these faults they're under seismic resolution again. So any type of fault or any kind of deviation that you can see in the seismic or with that velocity model is going to help you with your your drilling plan and your completion plan. Okay, so to pivot a little bit, uh, acquisition technology. Well, I can chat a little bit about that. <laughs> uh, so I was in the contractor community for many, many years. And back in the day, we were pretty happy with, uh, if you take it up from a spatial sampling standpoint, we were pretty happy at the end of the day when we were getting 100,000, 200,000 traces per square mile. How long but, was it? How long? 55 long years? Time, when yeah, were you in the industry? Yeah, 65 years At least old? 65 <laughs> years. You know. Yeah, I was still microfilm, right? Sick burn. Yeah, I've been getting, yeah. I get that usually from him, so that's okay. <laughs> but now, uh, the contractor community has made significant investments in equipment, and we're actually acquiring data sets that are millions have millions of traces per square mile not just one million but millions of traces per square mile now they've been doing this quite a bit in the uh, middle eastern markets because of the terrain the terrain is fairly simplistic over there so the 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 ability to put several thousand source source points in one square mile or one square kilometer whichever you choose to measure by canadian or u.s uh, has is quite simple Whereas in the U.S. Uh, or the North American market per se, uh, there is a lot more uh, what do we call uh, obstructions, and they come from several people or from several things, mostly people. So I didn't slip there. That was a purpose. Freud didn't slip. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so now that technology, that that high high trace density, wide azimuth, fully azimuthally sampled, that technology or that product is now available in the North American. So, and it's getting more prevalent. We're starting to see uh, new acquisition techniques, mostly with surface source because you're still limited in what you can do. Subsurface source, for instance, uh, dynamite, right? But with a Vibersize or any or other surface sources, you're able to acquire data probably for about the same amount of money. Like I said, I was getting 250,000 traces per square mile in 1996, and I'm getting millions for the same number today. Right, so it's uh, they've significantly increased their uh, their trace count. Uh, unfortunately, they haven't increased their profitability, so that uh, <laughs> that's still a problem in the industry for the most part. But they're working on that. Hopefully, at some point we can. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, at some point we can uh, we can uh, get to uh, ten million traces per square mile. Hopefully, because yeah, go ahead. Mike. I was going to say you brought up the azimuthal sampling. And that, that reminds me, uh, I, I've been conspicuous by my silence on azimuthal, ABO, and velocity inversion techniques. And uh, these techniques are, are in use today using surface seismic to help characterize horizontal stress anisotropy and the presence of fractures. And I kind of on purpose didn't get into it too much. I'm bringing it up now because I know that some, some, of the, some of the listeners are probably wondering why we're not talking about it. That these things can be, can be useful in unconventional plays. But I'm avoiding too much mention because they're somewhat controversial and they have, a, a, in my opinion, a limited realm of applicability. When they work, they work very well, but they have been oversold and, and overhyped. Mm -hmm. So I, could, I felt I had to, I had to go there because you brought up Azimuthal. Yeah. I'm going to return you back to your, <laughs> to your, uh, your comments, though. <laughs> so as Mike, as Mike mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, denser is better. 
but uh, as we've seen and we've tested and we've done all kinds of things in the field, that Mother Nature has different ideas no matter how dense we shoot these things. Uh, once we drive that sound signal into the ground, we don't know what's going to happen to it at the end of the day. So, Yeah, for, for example, Q, I like to say Q can rear its ugly head. Q mean is my proxy for inelastic attenuation. And I don't care how, how many sources and receivers you deploy, you could deploy them every, every fraction of an inch. And you're not, you're not going to change the fact that you lose your high temporal frequencies. And so that, you know, that, that's a real problem. And then certain brands of noise are really well suited to being crushed or eradicated through dense spatial sampling. So that's wonderful. But some things like random noise, sorry, like, like really, really tricky linear noise um, that's heavily aliased, if it's complicated enough, then you might need really, really fine sampling to deal with it. And that's still kind of a research topic. Yeah. Random noise is easier. Random the noise, the denser, the denser it is, the more you'll, you'll beat down the random noise. No quibble about source that. Source-generated noise. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this is overly simplistic, but what causes Q? Where does that come from? Oh, no, that's a, that's a good question. It, it basically, every time the Earth vibrates because a seismic wave is passing through it, mm. the vibration has some loss to heat. And so it's not a pure elastic phenomenon. There's mm -hmm. an energy bleed off, mm -hmm. and that that basically that 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 effect winds up. It's been it's fairly fairly straightforward to demonstrate theoretically that that kills the high frequencies of your seismic waves. Okay. So yeah. It's, if it's straightforward, it's a real what? buzzkill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Straightforward for Mike. No, okay. it's not straightforward. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. It's straightforward for the one of the textbooks. I, 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 I'm not going to derive that in, in real time. Kidding. No. Okay. My mind is mush over the years as I become more managerial and sales focused. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it's can, well, it's well appreciated. It's it's well established in the community. So, how can new acquisition technologies help to to mitigate some of those issues? Like, are there are there things on the horizon that that we're doing, or you think that might that might be out there to increase the frequency spectrum, both low and high? I, well, maybe. Let me let me let me return to the um, the, the noise thing. First, before I forget, to reiterate, some of the spatial sampling might help to to kill coherent noise that's aliased if you get sampled fine enough to remove the aliasing. So that's that's a good thing. But back back now to acquisition and the spectrum, the temporal right. frequency spectrum. Well, on the high end with this Q effect or analytic attenuation, honestly, I don't think all the acquisition in the world is going to help you. We need, we need a breakthrough in other ways. There are some ideas about sparse spike deconvolution that have been around for a while. Maybe those will, those will improve over the years. On the low frequency side, we are doing tangible things in the field. I don't know, Wayne, if you want to speak to them on the source and receiver side? or Sure, we're starting to do some, some experimenting. I think that's actually become more than an experiment. We're actually acquiring projects with what we call either low frequency or low dwell sweeps. So we're starting in the real low frequencies and moving, moving slowly through the lower frequencies and then ramping up through the high frequencies. So we're driving that spectrum uh, a little bit wider, so to speak, right? So there's a lot of analytics going on on, on whether that works or not right now. Uh, Mike, you can comment from the processing side. But well, it's interesting, yeah. The, the equipment's there to do it, as always. There's always been the equipment to do all this neat stuff, but stuff, we create the data. 3C is a good example. We create three component data, but a lot of times we only use the P wave and not the transverse and the inverse. And the, 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 the three, so we don't use the three, we just use two. We create these volumes, but we have other stuff that shits on the shelf. But now we're starting to utilize some of these 
uh, low frequency start point, so to speak, with the vibrators, right? Yeah, right. And same ditto on the receiver side, right? Yeah. The, yep. the oh yeah, we're trying to the, trying to go with the five hertz dampened phones instead of ten hertz. So we're trying all these things, but have we gotten there and put it into the production mode yet? Uh, I think we're on the cusp. Well, it's 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 right. inter it's interesting because a lot of clients are very interested in these technologies, and there's definitely theoretical promise, and we've demonstrated it on synthetics that you, you know you can get good results by by caring a lot about the low end. And we ran a, a fascinating test that hopefully we're going to publish at an upcoming SEG workshop. Shameless plug number five. All right. <laughs> so four or five. Five, six. I can't remember. So, so I'm a co-organizer. Christoph Stork is is the chief organizer, and along with uh, Bruce Hootman and Roddy Johnson and myself, we're co-organizing this SEG workshop on land processing and acquisition. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna we're gonna dive into some of these some of these uh, some of these topics and one of the things we're talking about is are we actually really enjoying the benefits of this low frequency attention that we're, we're that, you know that we're foisting on the soundings in the field are, are, are those low frequencies coming out at the end of the day after all our inversion products and are we really reaping the benefits it's not clear we ran an interesting internal test where we we acquired data with the low low Hertz or low frequency phones yeah. and I think we had low dwell sweeps we certainly had low lots of energy on the source side on the low end and after preliminary processing the result because we had a control experiment where we didn't do all this low frequency attention and the preliminary processing showed that that when you were really attentive in the field to these low frequencies you got a better answer but guess what after we got to final processing and were able to use a second pass of something called deconvolution to really whiten the spectrum we found very little difference between the conventional acquisition yeah. mode and the and the uh, the low frequency effort. This is at odds with some of the some of the literature, and I'm not disputing other people's findings, but it, there might be a subtle effect with an area dependency to it. We'll see. But is the subtle effect enough to justify asking one of our contractors to go spend X number of dollars on equipment to upgrade their crews? Right. So I know it's a it's, it's a, a tough it's, it's a, a tough, tough question. It's a tough question. If, right? You know, I guess if price points on the crew side drop enough, sure, yeah. it's gravy. Why not? Yeah. But if not, it might not be worth it. You might yeah. spend your money on other other things. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure. Was it not the, the low frequencies that help you differentiate liquids in in some of the inversions that you do further down the road? Is that the that's the biggest that's, benefit, right? Uh, that's I believe I believe it's very helpful. The low frequencies certainly help to to lock down the low frequency model for the inversion. Give they give you, you they give you support where you at low frequencies where you don't typically have such support with <clears throat> conventional surface seismic and and I'm not an expert in inversion but my understanding is some of the fluid effects do tend to show themselves better when yes. you've got the right answer for the low frequency model and that's facilitated by having some of these low frequency acquisition right. techniques in play. You mentioned earlier how the seismic technology and processing is the sort of the, the biggest area where we get interaction with our clients, right? And it seems to be undervalued in that sense. With acquisition, is that a way we can sort of push that to to fill that gap? So we have that interaction in, on both sides? So interaction on the acquisition right. side? Well, it's a good question. I mean, my understanding is there's typically not a ton of engagement at the field acquisition stage. There's obviously some. Actually, I would say, yeah, there certainly is. Our, our, when our pre-funders uh, write a check, they want to have some implement, uh, some some say, so to speak, what's going on. But mostly once we've made an agreement, 
uh, on parameters and all that stuff is pretty much on us uh, to deliver what we said we deliver. So, uh, but we do, where we really interact with our customers, uh, we help them, we take problems off their plate, so to speak, by taking on the acquisition piece. The acquisition piece is the most labor intensive, right? And, but where we really start to get in with our customers and we, after we get the data, we've done the field acquisition, we interact with our customers from the processing side a lot. So it's important to us that, like we said, we, like processing is a small piece of our AFB, but it's the most important because that's what we deliver and that's what they see, right? So uh, the, the, nobody, no, I always say this to my guys too, so nobody remembers the farmer that shot at you. Nobody remembers the, uh, the vibrator they had stuck in the field, but they always remember if your AVO volume was crap when they delivered it, right? So they always remember that. But none of this other, none of the stuff that went on the field ever matters when they're looking looking at data on the workstation, right? Yeah. So, so this the poor sister in the EMP yeah. chain is the processing. Yeah. Somehow is is this? It, it seems to continually be this yeah. this critical critical engagement point for for the client. I mean, I guess the client they don't they don't like having to deal with permitting and study. No, they don't. It's happy like you guys take the load off. We're them, taking right? we're taking that load that. off them. That's a big load. Trust me. So, jumping ahead, what do you predict for the future of seismic in the unconventional space? Well, I think, I state this without proof, of course, but I believe that there's going to be an increased use of seismic, including outside. Well, the, the data, there's a lot of, there's a lot of a, a data that's been acquired in the U.S. and Canada, for that matter. Uh, but a lot of it's getting dated, right? So when we talk about, we said denser is better. We mentioned that earlier, right? Uh, denser is better. So we're finding that a lot of these processing techniques that uh, Mike's been mentioning earlier don't apply very well to older data, data sets that aren't, don't have high resolution and aren't sampled very well. Mm -hmm. So we're finding that probably a lot of these older surveys are going to get over, are going to get acquired again, right? So that's, that's one marketplace, but as the unconventional space goes on, I think you're going to find, uh, find that a lot of these, like I said, a lot of these older data sets and a lot of the, you're going to make some discoveries within these data as the processing techniques get better, right? And as we use the attributes better and all those neat things. So, yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I was going to say, that I believe from for, for my conviction that there'll be an increased use of seismic. For that, to, for that to actually come into play, I think that we need to, as an industry, use these pre-stack attributes that Wayne just mentioned more and more. And we also, I believe, need to start using 3C converted wave data more. We didn't get into converted right. wave data at all in this chit chat. That's another it, maybe that's another it, podcast. It, it's, yeah, it could be a podcast <laughs> in a, in of its own. But you know, there there's some great promise with that technology. Like so many technologies, it's been oversold and overhyped to some degree. But there's some really interesting case studies in Western Canada that show that it, it's got great potential. We had awesome converted wave soundings yeah. on the Loyal survey. Yeah, and that's so so that might help to propel the increased use of seismic as well as increased use of of these attributes, so that's that's what I think is gonna is gonna happen. One other thing, I, I really think that seismic is gonna help in completion engineering. I mean, I think that's sort of where it's going to now, and where it's sort of we've seen that happen with some of the pre-stack attributes, and mm -hmm. just to to use seismic first off and understanding exactly where to perf and exactly where to make your completion intervals and where you're gonna get the best production, um, <clears throat> on top of all the regional work you do to to start out. And that'll impact the funding cost per barrel for a customer. So that's gonna, 
we we hope that that's again the value is seismic, right? So how's that going to drive our business? How's it going to drive our customers' business at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one one fundamental thing I forgot to mention, and Jason, you check me if I'm wrong, but I think what's happening in the unconventional space is that there's a uh, slowly growing recognition that's actually probably accelerating right now that to the tune that hey we can't just go factory production style with completing all of our acreages there's enough geological heterogeneity that the production in this set of laterals here from this pad is kind of different than over here or even among the laterals in a pad why is this one so oh, different? absolutely parent-child interactions yeah. let's understand them better and the, the, all these burning questions they're demanding some sort of better gaze into the subsurface, and that is seismic. That is seismic, right? and that's where I think that's where you're absolutely right. That's where the future is driving it. If you can understand the parent-child relationships between your multi-well pads and pads next to you, and how you're going to complete the entire basin on a stacked play basis, um, using seismic is going to be your one of your only real tools to help out. And the better you have your velocity models hammered down, the better you have your pre-stack attributes that can be involved in that study, yeah. the, the better off we are. And I think we're, we're well on our way. Awesome. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for being here for our second episode. This was a really uh, educational discussion for me, as someone who's not from a seismic background. <laughs> and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Been our pleasure, Erica. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Erica. Yeah. Thank you. Good for, thanks for dragging us all in here. <laughs> <laughs>